I said, I really want to do something big. He goes, I'm going to support you financially and we're going to do a 90-10 deal. He put the money in, I put my sweat in, I became a multi-millionaire really young. I think a lot of my friends that are about my age, you were all driven and running from meeting to meeting to commitment. That took up what seemed to me the vast majority of my life. And then the really, really important parts of my life, they were like the appetizers, not the main course. I had to reverse that. It's actually super challenging. One thing that Bert has taught me a little bit is that taking that time to really invest in your health, don't be afraid to put yourself first. It's not selfish. I've seen a lot of good come out of it because of these changes. My business would thrive. In other words, do a lot better, not just a little better, but meaningfully better. And I was right. Basically what I did was when I turned 50, I said, I got to totally rearrange things. And now 50% of my 24 hour day is dedicated to health. My dad turns 79 this year. He had the heart attack two years ago. I stayed in the hospital with him for two nights. One of the silver linings of it, I began walking with my dad every day. You gotta have really good people with good intentions, a good heart. Take 10 or 12 great friends and just put a lot of energy, like 90% of it, into those 10 or 12 people, including my family. What I didn't want to do is spread myself so thin anymore. The people that really want to see you do well and are rooting for you, that's very important. It's got to be genuine. Greater Good Radio, Connect, Learn, Heal, and Grow is brought to you by Brain Gain Hawaii, a boutique executive recruiting, career development, and coaching firm. Learn more at BrainGainHI.com. Welcome to Greater Good Radio. Today's guest is BJ Kobayashi, chairman and CEO of Black Sand Capital, co-founder and senior partner of Kobayashi Group, and father to Bert III and Lucia. Welcome to the show, BJ. Hey, Evan, long time. It's been 17 years <laughs> since we did the last interview, I think, right? I think it was about 2006. Yeah. I, I would actually have said that's like 30 pounds ago, but I lost a little bit of weight, so 10, maybe. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming back. You don't even look like you aged much. Look at you. All no, I aged 17 years. Dude. So since then, I mean, now you're kind of at the, I would say, like senior statesly level now, right? Yeah. So what what keeps you busy these days? Oh, so much. From a professional standpoint, you know, I'm one of those guys, I'm an entrepreneur. And so, you know, having two companies, you know, Black Sand Capital that I run alone, and then also Kobayashi Group, you mentioned that I run with my brother, Patrick, and my sister, Alana. You know, having two businesses that are really substantial and very active, even though they're in the same, you know, industry, real estate, they don't directly overlap. So it's, it's a lot. So professionally, both Kobayashi Group and Black Sand, you know, take up virtually all of my professional time and most nights too, right? Just thinking, wearing, oh. stuff like that. But from a personal standpoint, the last few years since I turned 50, back in 2020, I made the decision to go 50-50. So I don't know if I told you about that, but basically what mm -hmm. I did was when I turned 50, I said, I got to totally rearrange things. And now 50% of my 24-hour day is dedicated to health. Of 24 hours or just the waking hours? Of the 24 hours, half of it, which includes sleep, okay. is dedicated to health strictly. 
And in that 12 hour period, there is no business that happens unless I dream something business related, which I can't help. But, and then the other health related meaning, you know, not just sleep and eating, but also exercise and working on relationships that are totally separate and apart from business. And then the other 50% of the day is dedicated 100% to my career. How many hours of sleep would that be? Like, I get like about hours, I get about seven and a half, seven eight hours of sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually I rarely get eight, but I average about seven and a half hours of sleep, and so that gives me another four point five hours right for the other two areas. And so I'm pretty strict about it. Starting over three years ago, that's when I began doing it. Wait, so what would this qualify as then? Does mm-hmm. this which bucket does this qualify as? Well, this qualifies as part of my twelve hours of work. Because it's during the time that I do work. And since you and I are talking about, I think, partially about Black Sand and Kobayashi Group, it's work-related. Oh, interesting. You know what would be interesting is at the end of it, you went, okay, you know what? That was like this percentage work, this percentage health. Yeah. Actually, that would be my goal. Actually, you know, it's interesting. When I look at the 50%, the 12 hours is dedicated to my profession. That I'm not strict about, you know, personal stuff leaking into there health thing is leaking into there. What I'm really sensitive to is preserving, Evan, the 12 hours that I have for my sleep, my personal health, you know, eating right, that stuff, exercise. That's really where I want to keep the, the business out of that 12 hours. And I'm very disciplined about doing that. From the time that I wake up, okay. right, I have about four or five hours. And during that period, there is basically no work. I don't work in the morning or I rarely work in the morning. So was there something that kind of spurned that? Yeah, I just wanted a healthier lifestyle. You know, I was out of balance. I think you get a point in your life, a lot of guys do this, a lot of gals too do this, is where when you're driven, you're in business and you're pursuing your career goals and you get on autopilot and then you kind of forget that you put business and you put financial concerns number one and everything else comes way, way down the line, including your relationships and your family. And unfortunately, I had gotten to that position in my late 40s. And so I needed to look myself in the mirror and really self-evaluate and have a tough conversation with myself. And then this body of work is what came out of it. But it wasn't just sort of like a thought or a plan. It really was a huge, the hardest thing I've done uh, in my life. Did it just kind of creep up on you or one day I was like, oh, you know, is enough or was it? No, I think a lot of my friends that are about my age, you, I mean, you know, we're all driven and you can get to the point where you just feel like in my case, Evan, that you're running, always running and running from meeting to meeting, to commitment, to nonprofit board meeting, to, I was on the board of Hawaiian Electric for many years, to doing my trips to visit my investors in, in Asia. And then, you know, that took up like what seemed to me, what felt to me like the vast majority of my life. And then like the really, really important parts of my life were like leftovers, like they were like the appetizers, not the main course. And so what I had to do is I had to reverse that. So it's actually super challenging. It's not as easy as just saying that and then, and then doing it, you know, you got to really put together like a game plan. And, you know, I had someone that I worked with a therapist about you know how to put that together and, and still visit with her and, and talk it through. And, but I've seen a lot of good come out of it. And actually, it's interesting. I predicted that even though I was going to cut my work hours down substantially, 
work hours. I predicted that because of these changes, my business would thrive. In other words, do a lot better, not just a little better, but you know, meaningfully better. And I was right. There's a lot of factors that go into that, but, you know, investing more in sort of being set focused really mainly on my physical health, mental health, to some extent, spiritual health, meditation, that stuff really pays a lot of dividends or has paid a lot of dividends for me. Are there supports that you put into place that seem to help that? Yeah. You know, for me, I never go to other than, other than one thing, I never do anything that's exercise related without a trainer. Okay. And there's two reasons for that. One, one is it's an appointment and appointments. I tend to just, I just make them. I don't just push them off. I'm going to go work up by myself. And then two is I find that I get a way better sort of push or exertion during a workout. If I have someone that's like telling me what to do and, and challenge me to do that extra rep or that extra set. So that certainly is the framework for the morning because every single day when I wake up begins with, I make my bed and then I have a pretty intense exercise regimen. You know, what's interesting is I was listening to this guy, Scott Galloway. I guess he sold his company for a lot of money. He's a professor at NYU. And he was talking about the Surgeon General of the United States saying that, I don't know if it's the biggest or one of the biggest problems facing our health today is loneliness. Mm. It's worse than smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Yeah. And it was something like one out of five people in the U.S. Don't, can't even name like one close friend. Wow. So it said you're actually better off with having social relationships and smoking a lot than mm. if the opposite. Right. And he mentioned, he said, you know, the things that work the best for him. Yep. Because it's super common for like you know, high powered leaders and especially entrepreneurs to go through really high highs and low lows. Yep. I mean, the depression and, and things like that. Yep. And he said that there's something about sweating, like in exercise mm-hmm. and socially engaging around that. Yeah. That really plays into not falling into that kind of loneliness. We're covered in holes. I was talking, you know, with our mutual friend, Kikoa, you know, my friend Kikoa, yeah. right? So I was, and he's like, I don't know about that. Yeah, I'm like, I'm, but I'm like, no, like, there's a lot of this going on. It's just silent. People don't talk about it. You know right. what I mean? But yeah, it's interesting. No, it's a big deal. I mean, first of all, you know, gosh, I hope you could not smoke and also have friends, but I've never had that issue. Like my problem was the other one where I had what seemed to me, Evan, to be hundreds and hundreds, if not a thousand friends. I've always been pretty gregarious, yeah. outgoing. I love being around people. I do not like being alone. So, you know, I got, I got tons of friends. Mm-hmm. Having said that, you know, I would say right around 50, you know, there were some changes that I made in that department as well. As far as, you know, there's certain people that I wanted to keep very, very close to me. And for lack of a better way of describing this, the friend thing for me, you know, I totally agree. People are people, people, right? And like, we need to be around each other to me to be happy and healthy. And for me, it was like, I felt like I was putting a little bit of energy into like a hundred or 200 cups if each cup were a friend. And what I wanted to do, Evan, was change that and take 10 or 12 great friends and just put a lot of energy, like 90% of it, into those 10 or 12 people, including my family. What I didn't want to do is spread myself so thin anymore. And I, I think a lot of people kind of went through that during COVID as a result of the lockdown, right, that Governor Ige imposed. And so it was kind of forced, right? And hopefully you were around really, really good people. But, you know, I totally agree with Dr. Galloway being around people, especially 
the people that really want to see you do well and are rooting for you, that's very important. It's got to be genuine. I think that's kind of everything. Yeah. Because our mutual friend, Keiko, is one of my best friends, right? I see him a lot. Yeah. And I mean, I know a lot of people that don't have a really, really close, like, best friend. And so it makes me feel, like, super appreciative about that. And, like, during the pandemic was tough because you physically separate everyone, Right. right? So anyone who kind of already was on the edge before that, you going down a deep hole. I mean, you always are friendly and, and you have plenty of friends. So I'm not always friendly. I'm friendly like 95, 97% of the time. There's another 3 or 4% of the time where I am the polar opposite of friendly. But you know that's usually when I get in spots where I get very, very competitive. It's usually business-related. But yeah, I believe in being friendly and respectful, but you know, I also have that other side to me. And I think people do. I mean, some people that you know run companies have a lot of pressure, the chairman of the board, CEO types, friends of mine. You know, I told my son recently, I said, like, don't think you have to be a nice guy or a friendly guy. That's the last thing you want to be, you know, known for, in my opinion, right? You want to be known as someone who's trying really hard, works really hard, good heart. Like those are the qualities that you're looking for nowadays. But Listen, I, I try, Evan, to the best of my ability to, to be friendly. It really helps when you have the right people around you that yeah. get you in the right mood and where you share, you know, like common interests and things to do, fun things to do. And what helped me during COVID is, is the people that were around me really were into health. Got a new girlfriend during COVID and, you know, she moved from London to live with me a couple, almost a couple of years ago. And she's a health nut. And as a result of that relationship, I think that also helped me get healthier, much healthier and maintain it. I kind of feel like we're the result of our closest relationships. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a huge, it's a huge deal, right? And your family too. I mean, last year, nine of my friends passed away, a good chunk of them my age. And then like you this say year, nine, nine, I only found out the last one, like a couple weeks ago that that one was suicide and I didn't know about I'm it. I'm sorry, Evan. Yeah. And it's, you know, so it really, I mean, the grief was intense. My father passed away a few months ago. And when I contemplate on all of that, it's like at the end of it, because I was with my dad for the whole piece and watching the end of it. The only thing that matters is your close relationships. I mean, that's almost the only thing that really matters. Like, which is hard because when we're younger, especially, you know, and you want to accomplish everything, that's not necessarily what is front and center. Yeah, But yeah, it's really interesting to hear and, and watch kind of your growth and your journey. My son and I have been talking a lot about this. He's going to be a senior in college. Okay. I'm so proud of him. Super bright guy and very hardworking. And we were talking about this very issue, right? The friends and he's making some decisions right now about, you know, a, a career offer. He's got to go into Japan. He might go to law school. And the debate was, you know, what is the most important thing, right? Is it more you know, the friends, is it the, the girlfriend, the romantic mm-hmm. interest, family, and, and that, that balance, right? And it's interesting what Bert kind of taught me, which was that, you know, my son's really, really good at investing in his physical health and kind of inspired me. And we both agree now that actually the most important relationship is the one with yourself. Oh, yeah. You know, like just honoring yourself and showing yourself grace and don't be afraid to put yourself first. It's not selfish, right? To invest in really great food at reasonable quantities, 
at reasonable times and then invest in even significantly in your physical health through, you know, trainers or whatever. I mean, like, I think that one thing that Bert has taught me a little bit is, is that taking that time to really invest in your health, it only strengthens actually the relationships with all your other friends and, you know, to some extent set an example for them or vice versa. To me these days, my number one driver is energy. Do I actually have enough energy to do things or be present because I have less energy these days than I used to? Yeah. So that makes 100% sense because if I don't have my own health, who am I helping? You know yeah, I mean? you're going to be a better, help better father, better husband, better boyfriend. In my case, it really yields a lot of benefits, you know, investing in, in your health and putting that actually the difficult part is, especially when you have a family, is really putting that first because, you know, I went through it, you went through it. I mean, it's really hard, right? When you have small kids and responsibilities and job and mortgage and all this stuff, it piles up on you, right? So the discipline, the grit it takes to really put that first. I've noticed a lot of people that I admire, I look up to. One of them is, you know, Keikoa's older brother, Alika, who is mm-hmm. one of my best friends. You know, he is sort of like someone I really admire in that department as far as his dedication, not just to exercise, but also to his eating regimen. Yeah, he's disciplined. He yeah. actually looks better now than he did in like high school, I think. He looks fantastic. Yeah, I played football with him in high school, and he looked great then. He looks even better now. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. I feel feel really fortunate, actually, to call Lika, you know, one of my, if not my best friend. That's the thing about this is, like, at the end of the day, that's the things that matter, right? Like, do you have a close friend that when you really need, you can call them? When they need, they can call you? Could you cry with them? Could they cry with you? You know what I mean? Yeah. These things... I don't think I gave it that much thought before I was just trying to accomplish. Yeah. But especially after this pandemic and, you know, a slew of injuries and so on and watching people die. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that about all those friends of yours and your father too, Evan. You know, I know your father because we spent time at Wildlife Country Club on the membership committee together. And Mm -hmm. so I'm sorry for your loss. And yeah, it's definitely hard and makes you kind of think about your life and what is important, right? And we should be so lucky. I feel so fortunate that I've got, a lot of really great friends. Well, also your parents still going, you know what I mean? Yeah, my they parents. Healthy. My mom turns 80 this year. My dad turns 79 this year. He did suffer a heart attack a couple of years ago, but it was not one of those that requires major, major you know, procedure. It was really just putting a stent into a blocked artery. And then he takes some medication out of thin his blood and he has to watch a few things, but basically he's back to like 98, 99% of what he was. And both my parents are doing are doing great. Thank you. That's awesome. Yeah. So your journey has been interesting, BJ, because, I mean, you hit that pinnacle, I don't know, if, what, I guess however you want to measure it, of like business success super early. First of all, it wasn't all me. I had a huge head start, as you know, Evan, because, you know, being born to my parents, to my dad, and having that head start in the business was, was big. It's like being born on second base, right? Mm-hmm. But- it was really important to me that I didn't just rest on that laurel, that I wanted to take it and do a lot. And I also got lucky. I, you know, I took some risks early on in my career in my 20s and was able to do a couple of big projects, real estate investments, got to be financially independent before I was 30. And mm-hmm. so that gave me a lot of confidence 
But yeah, I did have that success, but honestly, more than half of it has nothing to do with me. It was really more about good fortune. Take it, right? I mean... I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. Okay, wait, so when you say you had some big risks, would you be able to like take me through that? What were the risks and like how are you feeling during it? What's the mind chatter? It's crazy. I mean, you have okay. to be a little you know, kind of off to do this stuff. But basically what I did was I got out of law school. I was in my mid twenties and, you know, I had gotten into the family business, which was real estate development. And we were small, medium sized then. And, you know, I had aspirations, Evan, to do something big and I wanted to do it on my own. I didn't want to have my dad hold my hand. I didn't want to have, you know, a bunch of support from consultants. And so I challenged myself to go and find something big. And that was the Kukio golf and beach club opportunity. And the big risk that I took at that time was that although, you know, in real estate, you want to kind of spread your risk and diversify and invest in and develop, you know, maybe three or four, four or five different things at a time. This was such a huge pursuit for me that I decided to focus all my energy on just buying this property, which would later become Kukio with my partner, Bill Getty. And I was fortunate enough through our mutual friend from Georgetown Law to meet Billy and his family was, at that time, there was no billionaires, right? They were like one of the wealthiest families around. And I convinced Billy to be a partner with me. He was 90%. I was 10%. He put money in. I put my work in. How did you convince him? We met through his general counsel, who I knew from law school. And, you know, Billy's going to be in town. Hey, BJ, going to meet Billy. Great guy. Wants to do real estate. So we became buddies and drinking buddies and we would go golfing and we got married around the same time. We had kids, our kids around the same ages. And so we just kind of got along and at least my style, you know, I quickly convert friendships and I like to have friends that I do business with, Evan. It's really important for me because it's different now. But back then, I just didn't have a lot of time and I couldn't see myself having sort of like, okay, here are my friends And then separate from that, here's my business. And then here's my family. It all kind of melded together. And so Billy and I, for whatever reason, just hit it off. And I said, Billy, listen, I'm really ambitious. We're the same age. I think we're 26, 27. And I said, I really want to do something big. And I'm just, I just feel like the timing could be right for me to do something here. And he goes, I I gotcha. He goes, you go do it. You go find it. I'm going to support you financially, and we're going to do a 90-10 deal. And so he put the money in. I put my sweat in. I got 10% carried interest, and we went forward and did Kukio together, and we caught some lucky breaks. I was flying to Japan, Evan, <laughs> by myself and going to the long-term credit bank of Japan offices with like, you know, like tw- 25-year-old kid, you know, trying to purchase the mortgage that was secured by the property in the Big Island that would later become Kukio through a deed and lure foreclosure process. Luckily, I went to law school, so I learned some of this stuff. Long story short is I got lucky. You flew by yourself. Yeah, I just, I mean, Billy didn't have an interest to, to go do that, the pursuit part. So I went, found the property, and then I went and flew back and forth to Japan to try and convince the bank that they didn't own the property, but they held the senior mortgage, Evan. And the way real estate works is if a loan's not being serviced in default, basically, the bank has to go through a process where they work it out. Okay. And since, you know, I went to law school, kind of figured out some of this stuff. I took a lot of real estate law classes and I figured out that if I bought the mortgage in Japan, I could do a deed in lieu of foreclosure and just trade the borrower his indebtedness for the fee simple rights in the property. This is all fancy law, legal language of saying, I basically was trying 
to buy the bank's loan mm -hmm. and then trade it for the property, which is now Kukio. And I caught some lucky breaks. You know, I went up there and Billy was nice enough to provide me with a letter signed by his father, who at the time was like the 16th or 17th wealthiest man in the country. And the letter basically said that BJ has the authority to bid up to $65 million to buy this mortgage. And he has my full faith and confidence to negotiate and get this done. And that letter, when I presented that to long-term credit bank of Japan, that was a real difference maker because up until then I was just a pretty young kid out of law school that was talking big. But once I produced that letter that Billy got for me from Gordon, his father, it was a game changer. And it really took my career in a completely different path. Now it's just a series of great breaks Right. And so I don't think I'd be as far along now if I didn't have that early big win and more important than the win itself and the financial gain that I, that I got, it was more the confidence that was instilled in me. And I tell people that, you know, at that time, I think 50% of that confidence I had earned right through talent and hard work, but the other 50% was like totally like I, I did not earn that. It's just that because Kukio became so successful, it lined up with all of Silicon Valley, Woodside, all the wealth being created in Northern California as a result of tech. You know, those people ended up wanting to own real estate at Kukio. And because of the strong demand for that real estate and I being a 10% partner, I, I became a multimillionaire really young. You know, when you're trying to get that deal, right? Well, you go to the bank. Was it super hard to get that appointment? How was it getting the appointment with the Japan Bank? Yeah, I spoke a little Japanese. I took Japanese oh. in high school and college. And so I was able to, you know, say, Ego ka, which basically means, do you understand English? Mm -hmm. <laughs> when I called and, you know, half the time they speak English and I was able to get an appointment after the second call, third call. I think the first two calls until I mentioned Getty, there wasn't a real interest. To meet with so, me. so did they even try to qualify that or so on? How do they know you're not just dropping names or so, or they just said, okay. Yeah. The letter, the letter, oh. eventually I, I kept on tr trying and failing. Cause basically. back then you got to like fax it probably. Right. It's interesting. The, it was a facsimile. That's how I got the notice that they were actually going to, going to go sell the property later on. So the mortgagee and mortgagor put a deal together and they actually auctioned it off at the state court here in Hawaii. And that's where me and Billy and his lawyers and, and our other partners, Discovery Land Company and Westbrook at that time, that's how we won Kukio. So I have a lot of fond memories about it, but yeah, it wasn't hard to get the meetings. What, what's difficult to get is to get, you know, $150 billion bank assets, right? Back then, this is like 30, over 30 years ago, 30 years ago, to take a kid seriously, right? But, you know, I was dead serious. You know, I wasn't screwing around and I wasn't pulling anyone's leg. Uh, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And Billy and I had a plan and through some good luck and some guts and some hard work, we got it, got it to be done. Was there anywhere in that, that the deal was about to crash? Oh yeah. Like, like several times. I remember the last moment that it almost crashed was when I had to have a call with Billy and his like, I mean, there must've been seven or eight lawyers and their advisors. Cause this is a, you know, multi-billion dollar family and call me and they said like, Hey, how do you, how do you know? Right? Like what a fair value is. I mean, like, cause I was explaining to them that the auction happens in increments of half million dollar bids. 
on the land? And how do you know that this will yield a good result? What is your experience? And it was kind of interesting. I said, well, listen, I don't have an experience and this is my first one, but I'm driven to go do a good job and I'll go find out who the other bidders are and I'll bring back some intelligence, some information. And I did that. I convinced them to stay in it with me because at that point, I think the advisors were like, God, Billy, you got this like kid in Hawaii, like who's never done this before. Like you really want to put your eggs in this basket? And through hard work and perseverance and never hearing no, I was able to keep on going and keep them with me as partners. I also told them, by the way, that like, okay, let's say we win and you don't like the price. All right. And, you, and they go, well, like, yeah, BJ, how do you know? I mean, like this price could be crazy and you're stuck. And I'm like, well, I don't know. If we win, we want it by a half million dollar increment. So if we win at 20 million and the guy that lost, lost at 19.5 million, I think what we're risking here is a $500,000 spread, mm-hmm. right? And that was an argument that, that I used in that conference call that, that really worked. It helped. Oh, so you closed it in the conference call? No, I didn't close it, but I convinced them to stay in it with me. I'm asking on that is because a lot of times on like big wins, there's all these like near-death experiences. Yeah. And there's like one typically that's like, oh God, it's either do, it's do or die and, yeah. and like barely oh, kind of make it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you're going through this huge wave pipeline, right? And then like you're trying to get through the other side and like... You know, you're going to crash and wipe out and you're done or you're going to get through, right? So mm-hmm. like a lot of deals crash and wipe out. I mean, most of my bigger wins in my career, I've been lucky and hope to continue to be lucky, but there's always been moments in time where they almost cratered like you mentioned, Evan. So can I ask on those, how do you hold it together when stuff looks bad, you know, where mm-hmm. it's like this could go straight down the tubes. Everything I got or whatever yeah. is going down the tubes. That's a huge mental, emotional experience, especially if you got other things going on in your life. Right. What's going on through your head or through your system? How do you make it through those? That's a good question. Well, first of all, like the area we're talking about is more of an art area in my industry, and that's deal making. Okay. So deal making is something that comes supernatural to me. In other words, in my DNA, I think I'm born to be a deal maker. So it's not something that I had to go to school for. It's not something that I went to business school and law school. I didn't learn a thing there about what I do as far as the art of doing these deals. And so I have an aptitude for it. And not beyond just having, you know, an aptitude for deal making. I love it. And so it just comes very natural to me. So this area is a little different. I don't need a lot of support from anyone when it comes down to getting a real estate deal done, whether it be financing, an acquisition, a disposition, a joint venture. There can be all types of different ways that we can create a great outcome in real estate, and not just for us, but for our investors. And so for me, that's an area that I'm super, super comfortable in. So even when deals get really, really tricky, or it looks like it's going to cave, I am able to keep it together. I'm able to always get there in the end, knock on wood. And yeah, sure. You know, I do lose deals. There's times where I come out in the short end, whatever, but most times, you know, we prevail. So what would be an, another time then that stuff looked like it was going to crash and however you held it together and what can I learn from that? Or how could that be applied to someone else's life as well? A little uh, tangent to that, Evan, would be that, you know, e- even though I have like a proclivity for this, right? Deal making and stuff. I will say that I have a great family. 
Like I have an amazing, my brother and sister are way more talented than I am in real estate and what they do. We all do different things. We don't overlap very much, but like I have great support from them from a family standpoint and from a business standpoint. I I have great parents. My dad's a great mentor. And the colleagues that I have, Evan, at Black Sand Capital, you know, Brian Lee, Ben Wang, Will Nguyen, Holly Park, and Nicole Chang, and Katie and Shiloh, our analysts, I'll tell you that like having like an A plus team, right, at both Kobayashi and Black Sand. And by the way, having had great people my entire career, like I've never had a bad team. And sometimes you have to adjust teams, right? Teams can always stay the same. But I will tell you that that's been a huge advantage for me is having great support around. And then that last piece of th- a few years ago, I mentioned, you know, my son and I talking about health and investing in physical health. I'm not sure there's even a real way that's much better to take care of your spiritual and mental health than your physical. I think the foundation to spiritual and mental health is the physical health. That's my opinion. And so those two pieces are really big, like for your listeners mm-hmm. in I'm 53 years old. I've been around the block. I've been through a lot, okay? Not just in my career, but in my life. And I will tell you that having your physical health, and if you can be really fit, like that's a huge advantage, not just in your personal life, but also in your professional life. So number one would be physical health. Number two was make sure that the team or the people you surround yourself with are top notch, right? Yeah, and when I say that, when I say top notch from, from a career standpoint, I, I'm not mentioning simply business acumen, smarts, hard work. I'm talking about in here. I'm making a motion to my chest, my heart, a good heart. No assholes. You got to have really good people with good intentions. Okay. It's not always the most popular guy and the friendliest, nicest guy that gets the job done. Right. I know that better than anyone, but I, I will tell you that, that I have that in spades at Kobayashi Group in a black sound, what I just described, we have that 100%. It's a huge deal. If you're really fit and you've got a great team, right? Talented, good-hearted people with good intentions, there's not a lot that can stop you as long as you have a strong work ethic, willing to take some risk. So strong work ethic, willing to take risks. And how are you gauging what's a good like heart? How are you gauging that? It's certainly not through words. You know, It's through someone's actions. And I've seen a lot in my career. I've had some great partnerships that to this day, we are the dearest of friends, very successful people, very driven people, people I look up to. I've also had some partnerships that didn't work out. And I will tell you that nine times out of 10, it's usually because there's a departure in the way you want to move forward. There's just a difference in the way you want to live your life. So I don't know if I want to describe it as sort of like a good heart or a bad heart. I can tell you that from my perspective, I know it when I'm in it. Like if I'm in the presence of someone who has a good heart, I I kind of take mental note of that, right? And then the next time we meet and the next time we meet. But you you don't know this for a week or two weeks or a month or a year. I mean, this takes years. You have to see someone's actions. Most importantly, you need to see their actions when doing something that's against their own self-interest is the right thing to do. And every single person that I have in my close friend group and family around me right now possess that quality. It's rare. It's really rare to find someone that will do something against their best interest, right? When the chips are down because it's the right thing to do because they care about the friendship. 
Yeah. I mean, that shows that they value you. Yeah. And yeah. it's not enough that it's just like, you know, a coffee mug or a mobile phone or a pair of glasses. There has to be some real chips in the middle. Something's on, on, on the line. Something's on the line, right? So Alika Mao, Melissa Lum, right? Lindsay Holt, Ashley Short. I mean, some of these people that consider Elliot Mills, considered to be some of my closest friends, each of them possess this quality. If you could only take like one memory from your father, what would that be? We had something we were pursuing, and this is professional, okay? And I, you know, get in this zone, Evan, where I click into this mode where I'm pretty relentless when it comes down to pursuing an opportunity, especially an acquisition that I think would be fruitful for, not just for us, but for our investors too. And I, I don't like checking with my dad often on this stuff. At that point, four or five years ago, he was already pretty slowing down as far as like the deals. But, you know, I would talk to him about this because this one deal was causing me some angst and I felt like I was not going to maybe not prevail on it. And, he, you know, he gave me great advice, which was, hey, BJ, like at that time I was driving my team really hard. And, you know, I think for the most part, I'm a really good leader, but sometimes I can be overbearing and at times heavy handed. I'm getting better at that. But my dad advised me, hey, listen, I think you're on too tight right now. And I think that not everything in the world depends on this. It's a great deal, but like you might want to just like let this one go. So my instinct was I'm probably not going to prevail. And my dad, who, you know, he and I are like, we're like samurai, right? It's in our blood. I mean, like we don't give up, right? We just fight. We're fighters. And at that instant, I realized that, you know, I was compromising my health. I was compromising my relationships with some of my colleagues at work, my siblings, because of this strong pursuit of this one deal. And I was putting too much into it, Evan. And my dad gave me some advice to take a step back, right? Take a deep breath. You know, you've accomplished a lot. You don't need to win every single one, Beach, right? And that talk we had, I'll never forget where we had. It was on his lanai at Park Lane. And it really meant a lot to me. It's the first time in my life that he ever told me to ease up. My dad is usually someone who says, floor it, right? Go through the wall, get it done. All he cares about is results. That's what I thought. But in that instance, he was telling me, hey, BJ, I care about you. You know, you're my son and I care about your health and you're working too hard and you're putting too much pressure on yourself. Take, take a step back. And that conversation, Evan, it's interesting. That probably was the first time I started thinking about 50%, 50-50 at 50 years old. That conversation we had at the very mm -hmm. beginning of this podcast so I just realized that was probably the first time that crossed my mind. So that's certainly a, a more recent, four or five years ago, not so recent, but recollection of an experience with my dad that I value a lot. Before you said that doing the deals, the drive, it's in your DNA, it's in your blood. Do you think that came from him? And then at that moment when he kind of validated that, hey, you know what, you have some things that are more important that kind of gave you the internal okay Okay. Yeah. The signs were already there. I wasn't as good a dad, a father to my daughter and my son as, as I wanted to be. I think I wasn't performing there at all very well. I was trying, but not doing a good job. And then I wasn't at that time investing in my health. And so I think that my dad and my mom in, in each their own way, right? My mom sent me a book. She had a little inscription on the inside cover and she had some very, very 
meaningful words to me at that time. And so I think that, that him sitting me down on the lanai four or five years ago and then that inscription in that book, I think that those were very meaningful to me. And you know, when you have great family and great friends, those are the kind of benefits you can get right, from having great people around you. It's almost like a rite of passage, right? Like, I mean, that that's almost like closing of one chapter and opening of another, but kind of, you know what I mean? Where that constant relentless pursuit just to accomplish and I have to get it done no matter what or hot a kitty, you know what I mean? It can be kind of, it's okay. It's okay to be you. It's yes. just okay. And coming from him was a big deal because... Yeah. You know, my dad does not give advice in longer than five or six words. You know, he speaks pidgin. He doesn't speak perfect English. He's a man of few words, but super smart. My son reminds me so much of my dad, really bright guys. And coming from him at that time, it meant a lot to me because just I'm just built the way he is. And in my career, I've struggled with, you know, I just don't know how to stop. Like I, I, I'm relentless when it comes down to pursuing success and prevailing in acquisitions and getting good results for investors. It's super, super important to me, right? And so coming from him at that time, it was meaningful. Was that before or after he had that stent? Before. Oh. Yeah, he had the heart attack two years ago. How was that for you when that happened? Tough. Tough, right? Because my dad's strong, right? He's a tough guy. And seeing him, I mean, I, I stayed in the hospital with him for two nights and they let me do it. And so I, you know, oh, right I, during COVID, I, I was there for him. But the good news about that heart attack is that in COVID, quite frankly, is that my dad and I, my sister, Alana and her family as well, we all live in the same condo project called Park Lane at Ala Moana Shopping Center. And one of the silver linings of it and the heart attack is that like, I began walking with my dad every day. So first thing I do is I wake up in my bed, I have a pretty big exercise regimen. And then the, the next thing I do after that is I walk with my dad and I do it every single day. What's great about it is that it hasn't stopped. So even after COVID, you know, the restrictions were lifted and you could do what you want, the masks and everything else. My dad and I have this habit now where we walk every morning and I love it. He loves it. We love it. It, it takes about 40 minutes and we go grab coffee together and we chat and it's pretty cool to spend time with him. And had it not been for COVID, and the heart attack, I, I don't know if we would have um, been able to have this kind of time together. So do you find that on now that you've done those walks, that's like way more time you've actually spent connecting than before? Of course. Okay. Yeah, because I would go like a week, week and a half, two weeks and not even see my dad. And he's in the same condo project that we developed, Park Lane. It's like ridiculous. And when you really think about your kids and how much actual time you spend with them after they begin driving. I mean, it's not a lot of time before they're boom, they're out in college, they're out and working, they're living someplace else. You see them on you know, holidays and stuff. I mean, add it all up. It is not a lot of time. So the fact that you know my dad and I live in Hawaii, live in the same in close proximity to each other and, and love each other and mm-hmm. want to spend time together, like it's pretty cool. It's also something that I saw that and I said, wow, I need to try and get something like this with my kids done. So me and my two kids, you know, we're not, it's not every day, but you know, we do things together a lot more often now. They're adults now, but luckily they still love spending time with dad. You know, it seems like you're not afraid of making repairs that need to be made like relationship wise. 
That, that's what I hear. You admit like I didn't fulfill in this area or so on, but I'm, I want to go and I want to make, make it kind of right. Yeah. So what would you say then for anyone that maybe kind of feels like they want to do something like that, make it right with somebody, but they don't necessarily know how? Well, it's a tough one. It depends who it is. It depends if it's a family member or a really good friend. You know, in my case with my kids, it wasn't really so much a falling out or anything. It's just that dad got super busy, right? And I've been busy their whole life, right? I mean, like, I don't think I met my dad till I was 17. <laughs> mm-hmm. When we were a whole family, you know, it was not living too far from here in Manoa, on Aleo. Every moment I could get with my kids, I'd grab it. But it was after work, I was tired, and you're building your career, right? So it's just, it's life, right? But luckily for me, you know, just simply reaching out to my kids and asking them if they're available for a dinner or lunch or go to the beach or go lift weights or we do boxing now together. We, we all love boxing. Mm-hmm. My son and I do jujitsu once in a while. So yeah, it's, it's fun. They're great, great kids. They're both really, really smart kids with good hearts. And I got to give, you know, their mom and, and me some credit too for a lot of credit for raising them the right way. So for me and the, me and Bert and Lucia, it was actually pretty easy to, to get back on track. What are you finding that you're teaching them that maybe you did when you were their age that you're like, oh, don't do that? I, I don't know if it's teaching them, but I try and lead by example because you know I don't do a lot of quote unquote parenting. <laughs> it's crazy. Like people want to parent, but like these, you know... I, I think nowadays one of the problems is I see a lot of parents that are way, way too involved in their kids' lives. And I think that they also try and make sure that like their kids don't have failures or if they do fail, convince them that it's not a failure, that it's actually a success, which is bullshit. I don't give a lot of like life lessons. I don't sit down with my kids and have super meaningful conversations. I'm just like their dad. And I want to spend time with them. I want to love them. I want to have quality experiences together. We travel together, but they're both in college now, right? And so for me, if they ask me, which is rare, then I'll impart some wisdom or advice you know, to the best of my ability. But I, I don't really have a lot of teaching that I do to my kids. What I do encourage them to do though, besides being fit, is I encourage them to take risks. I think taking risks is really important, especially nowadays. I see a, a hesitancy among people nowadays, younger people maybe, to take risk. And so to their credit, to both Bert and Lucia's credit, they're risk takers. So it, it didn't take a huge push for me to, for them to start doing it. So what would be an example, if you could even share that, of risk that they've taken that you said, oh, wow. I told my son, I said, listen, you know, we're going to, he wanted to take his girlfriend, Alexa, to, to Japan. And I said, okay, you know, because I I was going to be in Japan with my whole team, with Patrick and Alana and my colleagues from Black Sand. And I had a bunch of meetings. And my son speaks Japanese almost fluently. And I said, okay, I'm going to treat you and Alexa to this trip to Japan and the hotel and everything else. But you are coming to three of these meetings and you're taking notes and you're going to like give me your read and you're going to assess things and you're going to speak and meet people. And I want to see you perform at a high level get a tie, suit, everything. And he was wonderful. People really liked him. And, 
you know, listen, y- you go to Japan for a week with your girlfriend, you don't expect to be spending 30 hours, right? Because it's not just like a several hour meeting, right? Then it's dinner and then it's drinks and then it's sake and karaoke. I mean, Japan's different, right? I mean, there's a lot of bonding that goes on after just the regular work day. And I got to give my son credit. I mean, he can sing karaoke, he can sing in Japanese and he made a huge impression. I mean, so much of an impression that he got a job offer from one of one of these big real estate investors in Japan. And I think he's pretty close to accepting it. So he's got an offer nine months before he graduates. How about for Lucia? Same thing. Lucia is someone where she wants to try a lot of different things. And one thing I encouraged Lucia to do is sort of think about really doubling down on something that she has a lot of talent in, not something necessarily that she has just a huge passion for, but what are you really good at? And actually, she's pretty good at music. Mm. She plays the guitar, both acoustic and electric, and she's a pretty good singer too. And so I've encouraged her recently to begin, hey, why don't you see if you could be a lyricist, right? She likes to write music. And so she's begun doing that recently. I give her a ton of credit for that because it's not the typical sort of like college, work on Wall Street, you know, like I'm encouraging her to try and try and take a different path. And so that was just very recently, maybe a few months ago. What if you couldn't be in real estate at all and you had to do your your career again? What would you do? Stand up comedy. I've been doing it for like five or six years now. So, and I've done it in New York, I've done it in Chicago, I've done it in here in Honolulu. I've, I'm a huge stand-up comedian fan. I mean, I've been to, you name the people, I, I've been to the shows. Bobby Lee, Steve Byrne, Joe Coy, but Jerry Chappelle? Seinfeld. I've been to Dave Chappelle in Las Vegas. I've been to Bill Burr. I've been to, one of my favorites now, Sebastian Maniscalco, Ali Wong. I went so to are Ali you friends w- with these people? I've been friendly with a couple of them, and a couple of them have given me advice. I don't know I did, all those names. I, I don't know them, but there's a couple that I've met. I don't want to, I don't want to give okay, you yeah. stories out. But basically, through a mutual friend, I was introduced to one of them and gave me some great advice about comedy about maybe five or six years ago. And it's not just that I admire them and I look up to them. Like, I really work on it. So one of my, my probably my only hobby, I don't know, is, is, is stand-up comedy. So I do it. I did a set probably a fall of last year. So it was a while ago, almost nine, 10 months ago for a friend's wedding, two friends. And my next one I do, I'll invite you. Okay. Deal? Sure. I remember you did one at like the sky, right? But then yeah. I couldn't go for some reason. So, yeah. but that's the only one I heard about. That was a big one. So that me and James Monty did that one. It was the amateur versus the professional. And that was a huge fundraiser, right? For the, that soccer team that was traveling to Japan. Uh-huh and girls soccer team and they needed to raise i think a bunch of money actually to to be able to afford to go and and that evening that one evening me and james Mane and ryan hawaiian ryan was the okay opened and uh, emceed and we raised all that money in one night it was great wow where did that even come from like when did you want to be a stand-up comedian what's the story behind all that I've always loved stand-up comedians. Even like when I was really young, Eddie Murphy. Like Eddie Murphy, right? Yeah, Eddie Murphy, right? Raw. I mean, like even when I was really young, like probably like six, seven, eight years old, I used to watch Johnny Carson late, you know, Tonight Show. And those monologues, those are sets. That's stand-up comedy. Like David Letterman, Johnny Carson, Jay Leno, those guys, every night when they get on, they they do that five, six minutes, that's stand-up comedy, right? And I've always been a huge admirer of it. I just think it's so pure, because there's no one else to blame if you fail. It takes a lot of guts to get up there. And unlike singing, right, where anyone can clap, right, or cheer, laughing, when you're on stage, you can tell 
if someone's really laughing or because it's involuntary, right? Mm -hmm. Or forced fake laugh. You follow me? Which is why Joe Coy was so important. He told me, say, BJ, don't do it to your friend. Don't go to New York. Go someplace where they, they don't go do open mics where they don't know you. Okay. And that's when you'll know. And he was right. So I did the Laughing Buddha in New York. My, actually, my girlfriend now, Lindsay, her good friend, Courtney, who worked at New York Magazine, got me into the Laughing Buddha. And I was like the second to last one. On what does that mic. mean? Like you got to like, because it's hard to get a spot. Yeah. I like, it, well, so, some open mics are like, so, so these comedy clubs, right? They have open mics, right? But the thing is, is you get, you got to sign up, mm-hmm. right? You got to get on. And like a lot of people now try and get on and are interested in comedy. And then also if a big star comes in, right? From a sitcom or someone that's big. Then you're wants bumped. To try out material, you get bumped, mm. right? So I got on. But what was great about it was. Joe said to go. So I went to New York and I was able to see everyone go before me. So the 18 or 19 that went before me. How long is each set? They give you six minutes. Okay. But you could get the red light. So if you bomb or you suck or whatever, they take a oh. red light and you get pulled, right? Oh. You get pulled. Like the X, dun, like that? Like, yeah. Like a gong? Oh yeah, my. but I'll tell you what happened. So, so six minutes, right? Six minutes. Guess how long, how many hours I practiced on my phone. Guess how long, how many hours I practiced for six minutes? 200. Holy shit. I don't know. That's a lot. You're that kind, though. That's kind of how you are. So, yeah, I don't know. I tried to over it. It was not like 15 or 20 hours. It was way more than, I don't know if it was 200, but it was not, I'm talking about hundreds of six minutes. Yeah, watch me be right. So, and then the art of it is to try and make it look like it's just natural and coming out versus rehearsed. But comedy is super, super tough. But when you're up there and you get a genuine, when your bit lands, man, that, that it's, it's just as good as sex. So how was it then? So it was close. It was it, it was 18 before you. Is that what you said? 18 or 19. I think there was like 20 or 21 people up that night. So you're kind of waiting for a while. Yeah. There's a lot of time for mind chatter and stuff to go yeah. on, right? So what's like going through your mind? How are you keeping that under control? Well, I, well, I also watched how they walked up. Mm-hmm. I watched their body language and I watched the way their eyes, what their eyes did. And then I also watched them like some of them not introduce themselves. On purpose some of them, or, or what? I think they're nervous. Oh. And I think the main issue that night, which is the first time I'd ever been at one of these things, was confidence. Most of the people lacked confidence. And it's okay to lack confidence, but you got to produce it. You got to fake it. You got to turn on. When, so did it, did it cause them to like flub? I'll give you an example. I watched someone from a sitcom who was famous and he got up there and he went up and he walked slower and he moved at his own pace. He grabbed the mic and he adjusted it. And then he took his time and he looked up and he introduced himself with confidence and with eye contact. And people respect that. Not just in comedy, in life, right? You have a presence. Mm -hmm. So... So I watched him command the room before he even told a single joke. He had the room because he command. Yeah, of course, he's famous. People recognize him, but also he carried himself that way. And so what I did was I simply did that. When I went up, I pretended or I convinced myself that I was famous and that I had a sitcom. And so I walked up just the way he did. And I introduced myself. I said where I was from. I said, I'm glad to be here. And then when I finished, I also thanked the audience for, uh, audience for coming and I look forward to seeing them again as if this six-minute open mic was like some sort of huge professional 
you, you know. So um, kind of like um, was it like acting almost then? Yeah, because mm-hmm. yeah. this is not you don't do that in your regular life. Right? <laughs> Talk for six minutes, or I did almost forty five minutes at, at Sky. I mean, like you know, you you the way you treat yourself, that's the way the audience is going to treat you generally, other than the hecklers. So I learned a lot in New York. Six minutes is probably harder be, uh, to me, I would think, because forty-five minutes you can kind of go. If you're kind of go, you can kind of move it back. A You'd bit. be surprised. Evan, no, man. six oh. minutes was harder. No, forty-five. The longer the I harder. Mean, 40, the longer the harder. harder. Longer yeah. harder. Oh. Yeah, it's hard because don't forget now. The other thing I saw is on the stage and, and is that when people bomb, so if if a bit doesn't land, they don't laugh. Okay, so then what happens is what do you do? Yeah. Okay, I read. I studied, I saw people, and I saw the way they did it. And I knew that if I bombed, I had to move very quickly to the next bit. Mm-hmm. Forget it. Like a goldfish, right? And, but a lot of people that go up there, when they bomb, they go, oh, that didn't work. Or, or their body like... Like, oh, shit. Yeah, they go that, like, yeah. Like, like this. Right? I mean, like most people, right? Yeah. I mean, like, we're, we're, we're human beings, right? When you fail, yeah. you screw up, right? You hit the drive out of bounds or whatever. I mean, throw the club mm-hmm. or you get... Same thing in comedy, right? I mean, like, it's just that it's so much more pronounced because it's just you up there and you're there for... And plenty of people. And let me ask you, let's say you go up there and you bomb your first joke, your mm-hmm. first bit, and you got five minutes left. That's different. And panicking now. That's different though, Evan, than than having 40 minutes left. Oh. After bombing and you have 40 minutes left, let me tell you something. That is a different animal. I've been doing it for six years now, so I've had jokes that don't land. But I train myself to move very quickly on and like a goldfish. Just forget about that failure and move on quickly, quickly to the next one. And that also is really, really important skill because not everything is gonna land. You're trying to deliver. It doesn't land. And then you just transition as if you would anyways. Or you try to get out of it earlier. I mean, if it's even possible, which, I mean, I've seen Sebastian Maniscalco do this. Actually, actually, I just, I just saw him in Vegas. He had one flub up. It didn't land, which is right. The guy kills, right? He's amazing. He's the most financially the most successful comedian on the planet right now. Oh. Sebastian screwed up. And you would have thought the whole crowd was was that it was a successful joke you follow me mm-hmm. in other words he mentally i think where his space is is that he just knows nothing but or has trained his mind to think that even when he doesn't hear laughs he's still hearing laughs or I almost mean, like that was the setup some, i don't know but i notice it just because i spend time on it i i look at it i go i see stand-up comedians i read about it i study i write bits i write jokes i write sets like so but back to your original question without a doubt if I didn't get into real estate, I would have loved to have a career in stand-up comedy. And I think comedians are also really, really good actors. I think they're really great communicators. Certain ones have, obviously you have to be a pretty good communicator to tell a joke, have someone laugh, and then continue that routine one way for a whole night, make them feel as if like, you know, they're in your living room, right? Enjoying, enjoying these laughs together. So yeah, I, I love it. In fact, I, I still do it and I would love to do more of it. So why not dedicate more time to it then? I got to make money. Uh, what? I gotta oh, make money. my God. I got to make money. Wh- why? What do you mean? What? Why? Why? You- well, I have, what, I don't know, nine of the 12 or 13 largest you know, investors here in Hawaii that rely on not just me, but my team and our abilities and our hard work to go produce great results and a lot of these people are retirees right right well what happens you know like let's say that you know you invested the fund you close that fund out and then you 
then you do your passion projects. You know, I don't know how long people live, but mm. you know what I mean? First of all, I don't think I'm ever going to retire. Like I, mm-hmm. I love what I do and I don't want to ever retire. I always want to be in real estate. <laughs> I really love the business, mm-hmm. but I could see allocating more time for sure. Yeah. yeah towards this, but. Cause it sounds like it brings you so much joy. It does. You know what I mean? So it's like, why, why not? It does. I love it. I love it. I can crack, I crack up my, my friends and my close family members and it's fun to make people is it awkward for your kids to go or what the biggest one i've done so far was the one at sky it was like 250 300 people so joe coy right like before i ever did any stand-up his advice to me was don't do it in hawaii go go away to new york go to la which i did that was great advice but he also said to me he said bj don't tell jokes he goes tell stories tell true stories tell stories about you because if it's those unique experiences where people can get a feel for you and then and then eventually what happens is as your career builds right what happens is your audience finds you right as opposed to you have you have to go like just do like your set to anyone if if you get really good at what you do and it's personal to you that that audience like likes you and they find you so you're always going to kill it so that was joe's advice to me and so that's what I do. So I never, ever tell a joke. It's always a, a true story. There is embellishment, of course, right? And other stuff that goes into it. But the core of what I do is tell stories about my life. And at that time, a good portion of my life was about women. Mm-hmm. And I was single, newly single. And so I had a pretty active dating life and had girlfriends and and so these stories were really funny about my experiences dating in a new age with mobile phones and instagram and all this stuff and and like there was generally a pretty big age difference between me and the young woman i was dating or seeing and so these stories were really really funny and so about 20 or 30 percent of my routine was this and so my son's cool with that but my daughter was not cool with it at all and so she did refuse to come to the show. Oh. Lucia, she's not big on hearing about dad's love life, right? But my, my son's cool with it. Wait, so does she go to the New York one then? No, that was years back. So she was probably only, what, 13 or 14. She's oh. in school. And I went up, my current girlfriend, Lindsay, we met in New York. And then Courtney, her friend who works at New York Magazine, got me in. Can you tell me of like one time that you bombed it up there and what that was like? And one time when you had their biggest success? I will tell you that uh-huh. in the instances where I bombed, it wasn't on a set. It was on a bit, a joke versus the whole. The yeah, whole that's routine. what I mean. But I did exactly what I said, told you. I, I just moved on really quickly. Okay. And then when something lands, I will tell you that for me, I try and use my strongest joke bit to open. Because oh. you, you want to get off to a really good start. It's like running mm-hmm. a 100 meter dash, right? You want to get out of that gates really fast. And if you bomb out the first one, it's going to be really tough. So for me, that's the strategy is always to try and lead with my best stuff first. And so far, so far, I haven't had any lead joke bomb. I noticed that you're really disciplined about like gardening your mind. You know what I mean? Like when you just mentioned that right there, it's like, no, I'm not, I don't want to go in that space. That's not helpful to me. And you hold a boundary around and then it's like being able to kind of cultivate your mind to stay in what's needed in order to stay in the state that you want to be in as well as, you know, accomplish the things that you want to accomplish. That's right on. Yeah. Like that. One thing that's interesting though, is that your way that you can set yourself up to win, 
that that's an interesting piece to me how you cultivate it and you can set yourself up to win and a yeah. huge part of it's the mental game right right and emotional game and so on and that yeah yeah that's yeah, right i on. mean just just don't that's play right unless you have an advantage that's it when you, once you have an advantage then play the game you got the advantage because you're working hard at it too mm-hmm. and you're studying it and you're doing stuff so it's like yep. that's part of the prep on on being able to to set it up so you can win right yeah right, right on yeah. that's good yeah i like that was there anything that we didn't cover that you think we should cover that would be helpful no, this is good, man. This is okay. My first podcast, cool. I've been interviewed a lot, but I appreciate it. But th- thanks, thanks so much for coming. Anytime, Evan. Yeah. All right. If you resonate with Greater Good Radio, please join our community at www.greatergoodradio.com, where you can get access to exclusive content and offerings. Hope to see you soon.